Welcome to The Voyages and Travels of the Ambassadors, the epic story of a 17th century trade expedition from Germany to Persia that failed so completely its leader was publicly executed upon his return. This is Episode 3, To Moscow. In Episode 2, Adam Olarius and his companions traveled to the easternmost border of Sweden, which today is in Russia, and waited months for Tsar Mikhail I to authorize entry. It is now the end of July 1634, and the company is, once again, eager to get moving. But they are forced to remain in a small island fort on Lake Ladoga, called Nottoborg because it is shaped like a nut, for another three weeks. The surrounding countryside is very pleasant and even delightful, Olarius writes, but it is not healthy because nearby freshwater lakes and swamps breed a certain kind of fly, in such abundance, that many times they deprived us of the sight of heaven and would not suffer us to open our eyes. They spend most of their time hunting birds and sea dogs and having divertive conversations with Mr. Peter Krusebjorn, who had been appointed resident to Moscow by the Swedish king. The Tsar allowed no permanent ambassadors in Moscow, but at different times in the 17th century, England, Sweden, Denmark, Poland, and the Ottoman Empire had representatives there. English merchants of the Muscovy Company were expelled from Russia in 1649 for the company's support of the parliamentarians in the English Civil War, and although the trade relationship had richly benefited Russia for a century, the execution of Charles I destroyed any basis for a permanent English ambassador in Moscow. The group leaves Nottoburg on July 20, and their assigned Pristov, one Simon Andrew Correction, receives them in a town named Laba, on the Russian side of an unnamed river. Dressed in a long coat, he informs them that the diplomatic charade with the Swedes is not necessary this time, since Muscovy shares no contested border with Holstein. A unit of twelve armed Cossacks fire a salute in welcome and accidentally shoot Mr. Krusebjorn's secretary, who is watching the ceremony. He is uninjured, but the musket ball puts a hole in his coat. In the words of our intrepid author, the volley they gave us was not so well discharged. After refreshments of gingerbread, vodka, and freshly preserved cherries, and dinner with the governor of Nutteborg, they are disposed into seven boats to continue the journey. Two days later, on July 22, they arrive at the Nikolsky Monastery, where a priest feeds them bread and dried salmon, and priest of correction asks if he should furnish all their provisions himself, or simply give them the money to buy their own. The ambassadors choose the latter. I discussed the Russian postal roads in episode 2, and how the custom of providing transportation to foreigners had been carried over from the Mongol tradition. Now that our company is in Russia, with their official government escort, we need to examine the Russian government institution that administers relations with neighboring states and foreign merchants, receives foreign ambassadors, translates letters to and from foreign officials, and collects ransom money to buy the freedom of Russian prisoners in foreign countries. I won't attempt to pronounce the Russian name for the agency, but in English it was called the Ambassadorial Chancellery, and it was created in the mid-1500s. Undersecretary of the Chancellery, Grigory Karpovich Katoshkin, who, after 20 years of service, defected to Sweden and wrote a book about the Muscovite government, 
said the agency collected some 2,500 rubles annually, plus another 150,000 in ransom money. The Chancellery of the Great Revenue, which collected municipal, transportation, and business taxes, had an annual budget of 500,000 rubles that constituted a significant part of the entire state budget. Before 1704, when Peter the Great reformed the Russian monetary system, the ruble was a unit of weight instead of a currency. In 1666, one ruble was worth 1.5 troy ounces of silver. In a diplomatic report from 1660, Kotoshkin accidentally omitted a word from the Tsar's official title, which was, and I quote, The great sovereign, Tsar and Grand Prince, autocrat of all great, little, and white Russia, Moscow, Kiev, Vladimir, Novgorod, Tsar of Kazan, Tsar of Astrakhan, Tsar of Siberia, Sovereign of Skov and the Grand Prince of Tver, Ugorsk, Perm, Vyatka, Bulgar and others, Sovereign and Grand Prince of Novgorod of the Lower Land, Chernigov, Ryazan, Rostov, Yaroslavl, Beluzeru, Udoria, Obdoria, Kondia, and ruler of all the northern countries, the sovereign of the Iverian lands, the Kartlian and Georgian czars, and the Kabardian lands, the Cherkassi and mountainous princes and many other states and lands of the east and west, and the north from father and grandfather and heir and sovereign and possessor. Katoshkin's punishment was to be beaten with rods, but that wasn't the reason he defected in 1664. He defected because he was spying for Sweden and feared being thrown into a dungeon tortured, and executed. Powerful nobles were also trying to collect a debt owed by Katushkin's father, pressuring him into denouncing other powerful nobles, and having failed at that, they seized his house and evicted his wife. Katushkin abandoned his family, fled to Poland, then to Silesia, Prussia, Lubeck, Narva, which was under Swedish control, and finally to Stockholm. The Russians found out he was there and demanded his extradition, the Swedes asked him to write a book about the Russian government instead, which he did, titled Russia in the Reign of Alexei Mikhailovich. The book did not sit well with the Russians, because not only did it answer questions about government administration, the justice system, foreign and military affairs, and who controls trade, its author also alleged that the Tsar's daughters were not married outside the country because they were stupid and illiterate and would bring shame on the Tsar's family. As you might imagine, Kotoshkin's own story does not end well. Only a few years later, he murdered his landlord after propositioning the man's wife, an act viewed with extreme prejudice by the Swedish crown. He asked the Supreme Court to stay his execution until he converted to Lutheranism. His request was granted, and he was hung by the neck until dead in November 1667, after which his body was taken to the University of Uppsala for dissection. Back on the Volkov River, our ambassadors stop in the town of Ladoga and are swarmed by 50 children, all of whom are selling fresh-picked raspberries, which Olarius calls gooseberries. "'Twas pleasant to see those children leaping about us as we lay on the grass to eat our gooseberries,' he writes. "'And they were so dressed that we could not distinguish the boys from the girls, for both had their hair cut all off and were clad in shirts reaching to their ankles.' The company physician attempts to make a discovery of sexes among them, and having caught one of the children by the shirt, it happened to be a boy, 
who told him laughing that he was no girl, and thereupon pointed to some that were. They stay for dinner, listen to Russian musicians praise the great lord and czar, watch Russian dancers, and apparently the entire town comes to see them off. A few leagues upriver, a hundred local men drag their boats through dangerous rapids, and the son of a Hamburg merchant is almost smashed to death on the rocks. The flying insects are so bad that most of the travelers look like smallpox has ravaged their faces. The Priestov brings a young bear into camp, and Delarius says it could show a thousand tricks without telling us what any of those tricks are. I assume he thought many contemporary readers would have had personal experience with bear tricks, and so did not need to explain. Much liquor is consumed, and a Russian prince named Roman Ivanovich joins the fund and drinks himself into unconsciousness. They arrive in Great Novgorod on July 29, where Paul Fleming and others in the advance group have been waiting since February. The cargo from seven boats is transferred to 50 wagons, and the party sets out again late in the day on August 1. Some German soldiers on the road raid the wagons, and our translator, Samuel Barron, explains that the countryside was being ravaged by foreign mercenaries, hired by the Tsar to recapture Smolensk from the Polish army. The campaign failed, and the soldiers were discharged in Moscow, after which they raided and pillaged their way home. On August 7, the citizens of Budova release swarms of bees among the caravan, causing the horses to stand upon their hinder feet and beat the ground as if they had been bewitched. They make camp in a field. A week later, they arrive in Moscow. The entrance into Moscow is comical, but obviously serious in the same way our modern processions of politicians arrive in a caravan of black SUVs. Olarius describes the order of march. First are the Russian musketeers who had accompanied them on the road. After them, three of the lesser important members, a man identified as the harbinger, or one sent ahead to arrange lodgings, the captain of the ship, and the clerk of the kitchen. In the third rank are three horses for the Tsar, one black and two dappled greys. Then a trumpeter, possibly the one who, earlier in the voyage, had killed one of the Russian musketeers in a drunken rage. Followed by a steward, followed by three gentlemen abreast, followed by three more gentlemen abreast. In the eighth rank is Secretary Olarius himself, the physician and the controller of the expedition. Then come the two ambassadors, each with four armed guards, then two ranks of page boys, then a coach with four gray horses, the master of the wagons, five litters of gifts to the Tsar covered with Turkish tapestries, an open wagon containing a sick man, forty-six more wagons, and finally three servants. Riders from the city arrive, one after the other, with orders that the procession should speed up or slow down so as to arrive at the designated reception point, not earlier and certainly not later, but exactly at the appointed time. They pass through a crowd of more than 4,000 Muscovites, all excellently well-mounted and sumptuously clad, and are able to see, at a distance, the Swedish delegation that had preceded them. Within a pistol shot of the city, Olarius tells us, two Priestovs on gallant white horses arrive, followed by the Tsar's master of the horse and twenty more white steeds, and a spokesman welcomes them in the full, complete, and bombastic name of Tsar Mikhail I, conservator of all the Russians, 
Prince of Vladimir, Moscow, Novgorod, Tsar of Kassan, etc., etc., etc. Upon entering the city, they see whole streets burned down by a fire so violent it had reduced 5,000 homes to ash, forcing many inhabitants to take shelter in tents and huts. The Pristov installs them in their assigned quarters, two ordinary homes made of wood, and apologizes that the fire has also burned down the ambassadorial residence, usually used for such visits. Before they can inspect their lodgings, 32 servants deliver eight sheep, 30 capons, and pullets, a great store of white and brown bread, and 22 sorts of drinks, wine, beer, hydromel, and akavite, mead and vodka. The doors are locked from the outside, and twelve musketeers are ordered to prevent all communication with the city's residents until after the first audience with the Tsar. They are locked in their quarters for four days, during which time they discover that their translator is a Russian national who had been captured by the Polish, made servant to a Polish prince, whom he accompanied to the University of Leipzig, where he learned to speak German. For the next several days, they wait for their audience with the Tsar, celebrate the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin, pray and sing, and visit with the Russian Grand Prince Balthazar Moucheron, who tells them that the Russians were very pleased with the procession into the city, and astonished to learn that the Germans are powerful enough to outfit such an impressive embassy. On August 17, they hear giant cannons being fired outside the city and are told two different stories. One, that the Tsar is merely trying out some cannons he had recently ordered, and another that the Russians wanted to display their artillery because some believed it had all been destroyed at the Battle of Smolensk. On the 19th, they prepare for their audience with the Tsar and don their best clothing. Once again, grand white horses are provided for the ride to the Kremlin, and once again, Olarius provides a lengthy description of the event. This time, however, the train of gifts precedes the ambassadors, including the horses, a large cross, an ebony apothecary cabinet containing some kind of chemical apparatus, a mirror, a chiming clock painted with the parable of the prodigal son, a walking staff, and another clock. If you've ever seen illustrations of such processions, you might have noticed men carrying long poles with what appear to be sheets of paper hanging down from the top. Valerius tells us that these men are gentlemen of the chamber, and they carry, up on high in the air, the ambassadorial credential letters from the Duke of Holstein to Tsar Mikhail I. The streets and rooftops are filled with onlookers, with more than 2,000 musketeers making sure the way to the Kremlin is clear. Once again, a series of riders arrive to make sure his Tsarist Majesty is not kept waiting on his chair of state, which Hilarius tells us contains 800 pounds of silver and 120 ounces of gold, calculating its entire worth at more than 25,000 crowns. Here, Baron uses the word talers, and the complicated state of European currency of the time makes a modern monetary value difficult, if not impossible, to determine. A guess, based on today's spot price of the two metals, would be $300,000 in silver and $230,000 in gold. On the right side of the chair, an imperial apple weighing the same as a 48-pound cannonball sits atop a silver pyramid. On the other is a water basin and napkin so the Tsar can wash his hands after having them kissed by the visitors. Hilarius then explains that no one is actually allowed to touch the Tsar's hands except the two ambassadors. 
Afterward, the Germans are treated to a state dinner of 38 different dishes, served on silver platters which are not especially clean, and, once again, copious quantities of liquor, this time including raspberry, blackberry, and cherry mead of excellent quality. It takes our intrepid secretary some 2,500 words to tell us what all happens, all of which is confirmed in the book by poor Katoshkin. From the ritual at the border, to the Moscow procession, to being locked inside for days, to the audience in the Kremlin, everything is scripted, and every group of foreign ambassadors is treated in the same manner. For some reason that is not explained, and perhaps not known to Olarius, the Swedes and Germans are thereafter permitted to roam the city without escort. This was a great surprise, Olarius writes, for customarily neither the ambassadors nor their attendants were allowed to go out alone while they resided in Moscow. If they had some business to transact outside of the house, a musketeer had to accompany them. In a footnote, Baron elaborates, Surveillance of the previous ambassadors had sometimes been so oppressive that some complained of being treated more like prisoners, and Olarius correctly recognizes that the Holsteiners and the Swedes received a special privilege. On September 1, more than 20,000 Russians celebrate the new year on the Kremlin Square, and Olarius informs us that the Russians say 7,142 years have passed since the creation of the world, while we, on the other hand, reckon the number at 5,603. A series of five secret meetings are taken with the Tsar's representatives over the next several months to negotiate the terms of passage to Persia, and the Holsteiners make a grave and costly diplomatic error. Against the Tsar's wishes, they attempt to involve the Swedes in the negotiations. As with the processions, the meetings are both serious and comical, not unlike the negotiations between countries these days. At the first meeting on September 3, the four Russian negotiators each begin their speeches by reciting the entire official title of Tsar Mikhail I, and only then communicating their proposals and requests. The proposals by Brueggemann and Crucius are taken under advisement to be translated and delivered to the Tsar for consideration. The second meeting does not occur till September 19, and the Holsteiners, returning to their quarters and finding that no food will be delivered that day, discover they had committed their first diplomatic faux pas upon arriving in Moscow a month earlier. As we have discussed, foreign diplomats are provided with enormous quantities of food and drink at the Tsar's expense, and twice the daily amount is provided on the first day of an ambassador's arrival, on large religious feast days, and when ambassadors have an audience with the Tsar. On this day they receive drink, but no food. Barron's translation explains the problem like this. The Tsar had heard, one of our good friends reported to us, that the first time we were favored, we had sent many dishes of food to others that very day. It must be said, however, that when it is impossible to eat on the same day all that has been granted, it is quite common to send some to good friends, so that they too may share the Tsar's favor. Apparently, the Tsar looked poorly upon this sharing of the wealth, and made it known to the Holsteiners. The amount of daily rations is so prodigious it bears another recounting, especially since Olarius himself spends so many words on the food. On each day while in Moscow, the ambassadors receive 62 loaves of bread, a quarter of beef, four sheep, 12 chickens, two geese, one hare, 50 eggs, 10 kopecks for candles, and five kopecks for the kitchen, 
15 tankards of alcohol, three vodka, one Spanish wine, eight mead, three beer, for the ambassadors and their associates, plus one barrel of beer, one cask of mead, and one cask of vodka, for the attendants. And on a weekly basis, they get 16 kilograms of butter and salt, three buckets of vinegar, two sheep, and one goose. But all this wasn't just for 34 people. We don't know exactly how many members stayed in Moscow, but the entourage at its largest numbered almost 300 persons. In addition to the ambassadors and counselors, there were cooks, servants in charge of silver, watchmakers, two trumpeters, two general musicians, one viola da gamba player, assorted shipbuilders, a doctor, a chaplain, court attendants, blacksmiths, and soldiers. The final secret meeting occurs on November 19, and the cost of the diplomatic blunder becomes clear. Baron explains in a footnote, The negotiations demonstrated that Holstein had blundered in asking for Swedish support, since that only aroused the suspicion of the Russians, who were unalterably opposed to the Swedish participation in the Holstein scheme. After the matter had been settled, Holstein was at last awarded the privilege it had requested, but for a financial consideration 50% higher than that initially offered. In return for the right to cross Russian territory, the Tsar demands 600,000 Reichstallers for each of the first five years, and 800,000 annually each year thereafter. On the tenth year, the amount increases to one million. The ambassadors are not authorized to agree to such rich terms and are forced to return to Holstein to have the treaty ratified. Hilarius casts this as a success after many difficulties and much effort, and the company spends the rest of the day in all sorts of amusement in the company of several good friends. Captain Cordes and a construction crew are sent 200 miles south down the Volga to build a ship and prepare for the return of the ambassadors, and Hilarius, in what is perhaps foreshadowing, tells us that a large group of 72 Tatars arrive for an audience with the Tsar. These cruel and malevolent people live in villages scattered over an extensive area south of Moscow, he writes. They caused great harm on the Grand Prince's borders by pillaging and kidnapping. The Tatars often send embassies to Moscow, but only to obtain gifts. His Tsarist Majesty does not mind the cost if only he can buy peace. But the Tatars preserve the peace only so long as it is to their advantage. On December 17, it is determined that 80 wagons, instead of the 50 with which they arrived, are required for the trip home to Gatorp. They depart on December 24, 1634. In the next episode, we hear Duke Frederick's 15 rules of conduct for his emissaries, which demand obedience and industriousness while forbidding drunkenness and arguments. And we set sail up the Baltic once again on a brand new ship built specifically for the voyages and travels of the ambassadors. 